So we're going to go into chapter 8 of Hebrews today. The subject of the whole book of Hebrews is Jesus is better. Um, better than what? Well, put whatever you want to put in the question. <laughs> Jesus is better. Whatever you think is important. No, Jesus is more important. Whatever you think is... You need, you need Jesus more. Jesus is better. And here in chapter 8, the headline is The New and Better Covenant. Chapter 8. So let's read the first bit. I'll get into it. Now, the main point in what has been said is this. We have such a high priest, Jesus, who has taken his seat at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in the heavens, a minister or servant in the sanctuary, and in the true tabernacle, which the Lord pitched, not man. This is the main point of this letter, says the apostle. We have a man in heaven, a high priest, who's taken his seat at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in the heavens. Now, if you go back to the old covenant, to the priests and to the tabernacle and to the temple and so on, there were no seats for priests in those holy places. They stood to serve. But it's important to know that Jesus has sat down in heaven's throne. He's both our priest and our king. His work of atonement, making sacrifice an offering for sin is ended. Now he reigns over us and represents us before the Father. We'll come back to the true tabernacle, which the Lord pitched not man in chapter 9. So I won't talk about it too much today. For now let me say that when God gave instructions to Moses to build the tabernacle, which looked like that, it looked a pretty dull, I mean there were some elements of, of kind of glory around the edges and so on, but the main tent itself was covered with probably seal skins, porpoise skins, it wasn't much to look at, like a brown-grey thing, you know. And yet in there was the presence of God. And God had that pitched right in the middle of the camp of Israel. So God said, I'm here among you. He wasn't out on the edge. He was right in the middle. God making his home, tabernacling. They lived in tents. God lived in a tent. That was the point. Right in the middle of them. And that God's tent of timber, animal skins and drapery in which he would live in the very centre of the camp of Israel was passened on a heavenly model, something that Moses saw and had to build an image, a shadow of, which you heard about earlier. It taught Israel and it teaches us now about heavenly realities. The temple, a later uh, brick built, uh, sorry, stone built, stone, wooden metal, was an adaptation of that model and was designed by David, then built by Solomon, then destroyed by the Babylonians, then rebuilt by Zerubbabel, then completely rebuilt and enlarged by Herod during the time of Jesus, and then finally destroyed by the Romans in AD 70. And it was never as good as that, that tabernacle. Why? Because that was God's design. And it was a teaching design. And we'll look at that in a bit next week in chapter 9. So, Jesus has entered the heavenly reality of which that is a picture. It goes on, For every high priest is appointed to offer both gifts and sacrifices. So it is necessary that this high priest, Jesus, also have something to offer. Now, if Jesus were on earth, he would not be a priest at all, because he wasn't a Levite. Since there are those who offer the gifts according to the law, who serve a copy and shadow of the heavenly things. But as Moses was warned by God when he was about to erect, erect the tabernacle, see, the Lord said, that you make all things according to the pattern which was shown you on the mountain. 
That is what the design and building of the tabernacle was. It was a copy and shadow of the heavenly things. We say foreshadow. Now, you see, a shadow is cast by a bright light, isn't it? So the shadow is a piece of darkness, really, but the, the, the light makes the shadow. So what is ahead, the thing, the, thing, the thing that's foreshadowed, has to be much better, much brighter than the shadow. It's altogether better than something of which is, of which, you know, the, the foreshadow. It seems that Moses saw something, a heavenly pattern or image, of the heavens themselves, we would say, which he was given detailed instructions then to reproduce in earthly form. The offering of a blood sacrifice by the priest was also a copy and shadow of the heavenly things. We'll get to that in Hebrews 9, talking about the blood of Jesus. Today, we're in chapter 8, there's really two things here. Jesus, who's the mediator and servant or minister of a better covenant. People who stretch around and say, I'm a minister, if they put the word servant, they wouldn't be so fussy about it, would they? The mediator and minister of a better covenant and the new and better covenant itself of which Jesus is the mediator. See, Jesus is the greater and better mediator and leader than even Moses was. Jesus is the greater and better priest than Aaron or even Melchizedek who is the foreshadow of Jesus. Jesus is the greater and better king than even David and Solomon. Let's read up. I'm going to then do some headlines here. But now Jesus has obtained a more excellent ministry by as much as he is also the mediator of a better covenant which has been exacted or enacted sorry on better promises for if that covenant first covenant had been faultless there'd have been no occasion sought for a second for finding fault with them not just the covenant but with Israel he said, Behold, days are coming, says the Lord. Now this is a long quotation from Jeremiah 31. Behold, days are coming, says the Lord, when I will effect a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. Not like the covenant which I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to lead them out of the land of Egypt. For they did not continue in my covenant, and I did not care for them, says the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, says the Lord. I will put my laws into their minds and I will write them on their hearts. And I will be, excuse me, I will be their God. And they shall be my people. And they shall not teach everyone his fellow citizen and everyone his brother, saying, Know the Lord. For all will know me from the least to the greatest of them. I like, the, I like that order, don't you? God starts low and with the least. For I will be merciful to their iniquities and I will remember their sins no more. When he said a new covenant, he has made the first obsolete for whatever is becoming obsolete and growing old is ready to disappear. What is a covenant? It's a relationship governed by a binding agreement. Um, two lawyers, and no, one's out the room, but we've got lawyers, you know where a covenant is. It was an old, it's a rather old uh, illegal document nowadays. People don't enter into covenants so much. Maybe trusts and things. But. A covenant has positive benefits but penalties if you break the covenant as well. A covenant is a big issue in God's dealings with men. The Bible traces our history as mankind from our creation by God through a series of covenants that he's made. The covenants contained promises and penalties govern the relationship between God and his people. 
Here's the, the six main covenants in the scriptures. First one was Garden of Eden, Adamic. God made a covenant with Adam and Eve, which they broke. It's called the fall of man. God made a covenant with Noah. Right? He promised humanity that he would never again destroy all life on earth with a flood. God gave the rainbow, which was hanging his war bow. You know a bow, an arrow? God hung his bow in the sky, saying, I'm not going to do this again. Until the, end, until the end of the world, when the earth will be renewed by fire, not by a flood. But it's a reminder that God can and will judge sin. Then there's the Abraham covenant, Abrahamic. God made a covenant with Abraham. Surely in blessing I will bless you, and I will, I will you know, make your seed. In your seed, all the nations of the earth will bless. The seed is not a people, it's a, it's a person, it's Jesus. The Abrahamic covenant. Then there was the Mosaic covenant. God made a covenant through Moses with the people of Israel. Moses was the mediator, though the angels were also mediators in, in that covenant. But, and it was with the people of Israel. The, the law, that's called the law, that covenant. The laws of God contain roughly 300 positive commands and 300 negative commands. God hadn't finished yet, though. He made a covenant with David that of one of David's sons, sorry, one of David's sons would reign as king over an, over an everlasting kingdom. Covenant with David. And finally, God has made a covenant in and through Messiah Jesus with all who will trust in him. It has this one condition, trusting Jesus Messiah. It's the same offer to Jews and Gentiles. It's the same offer to all nations. This new covenant and all the other covenants are completed, fulfilled in Jesus Messiah. It isn't that this one's still running, oh this one's over here but that one's still over there. No, that's a better illustration for it. I like, I found that one yesterday, I like it. From Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden, through Noah, through Abraham, through Moses, through David, Jesus is the crowning covenant that supersedes and fulfills all of the other ones. It finishes them out. There isn't something else still ticking while the new one's running. The new one has completely overtaken the others. You can't go and live by the old covenant anymore. You can't go and, and stick, get back under Moses. You, you can't live under Moses. The only choice is to live under Messiah in the new covenant. It crowns, completes and supersedes the earlier covenants. If you want to hear this clearly as well, the new covenant wasn't actually made between us and God. It was made, really, between God the Father and God the Son. This final better covenant that, that wraps up all previous ones was made with a man. You see, Garden of Eden, the covenant was made with Adam, a man. Noah, a man. Abraham, a man. Moses, a man. David, a man. The new covenant was made with a man, but that man. The man, Christ Jesus. Here's a scripture. Let's step outside of Hebrews for a moment. 1 Timothy 2. There's one God. And there's one mediator also between God and man. The man, Messiah Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all, the testimony given at the proper time. Jesus is the mediator, that's more in Hebrews. So we're not done with this yet. It was made with and mediated by Jesus. And like those who followed Noah or Abraham or David, 
we are the heirs of the promise, we are the heirs of a covenant that was made with someone else on our behalf. We inherit all the blessings of this covenant through Jesus with whom it is made. I didn't volunteer for it. I, I, I didn't sign up to, for it. Do you understand? Jesus did on my behalf. On our behalf. He stood as our, as our representative without the popular vote, thank God. By God's purpose, by God's will, Jesus stood for us and forged the new covenant. The new covenant is a better covenant, better than all the previous covenants. If you read the Old Testament, and I've, I've heard people talk like this, you read the Old Testament, you read Leviticus, oh, if only it was like those days. You haven't understood this. We are in the better covenant. The old one's a shadow. Better than the law. We just read it. Behold, days are coming, said the Lord, when I will effect a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. Not like the covenant I made with their fathers, which was the one in, in Sinai through Moses. They didn't continue in that covenant, so I couldn't care for them, says the Lord. This new covenant was promised through the prophets to Israel because the law was inadequate to bring people into righteousness, right relationship with God and a right way of living because of a right relationship with God, because of a renewed heart as well. The law couldn't do that. There was nothing wrong with the law. The problem was with us. We were incapable of keeping God's law. Unregenerate people, people who haven't been born again, born of God, cannot keep God's law. Because there's a law working in them called the law of sin and death that says, oh, I can't do that. I don't want to do that. You're being governed by another law, the law of sin. So the house of Israel and the house of Judah didn't continue in the Lord's covenant. The time came when they fell from the care of God. The new covenant is built on better promises too. God made promises to Noah, to Abraham, to the nation of Israel, to David, but the promises upon which the new covenant is established are far better. Now, this is not where Hebrews 8 takes us, but let me just make a comment here that the founding promises of the new covenant are, are found in Scripture, but they're really majestic and, and, and somewhat mysterious because they were made between the Father and the Son. And in a sense, the new covenant was agreed even before the world was made. How about that one? You have to deal with a timeless, eternal God to get that one going, don't you? One scripture says that Jesus was the lamb slain from before the foundation of the world. The new covenant, the arrangement by which men and women would be saved through the blood of Christ was agreed, determined, before the world was made. Jesus standing as our second man, last Adam, according to 1 Corinthians 15. Second man, because Jesus stood as our representative man, and the, where the first man lost and sinned, Jesus came as the second man and stood and won. And he's the last Adam, because... There have been a number of Adams in a way because 
Adam is really the beginner of a new race, and Noah was the, was the first man of a new race, and Abraham was the first father of a new race, and, and perhaps Jacob, whose name became Israel, was, they were Adams in a sense, they were the start of a new race of mankind. Well, Jesus has started a new race. It's called the children of God through faith in him. The redeemed of the Lamb, the Israel of God. Jesus is the start of a new race, so he's the last Adam. There's no more Adams after that. There's no, there's no new, king, new mankind to come about. Jesus is the head of a new humanity. He's the last Adam. All the previous covenant conditions were met by Jesus. Where there was an if then, if you will do this, then I will do that. All of those were completely fulfilled by Jesus. And therefore, every covenant promise, every covenant benefit is his to dispense where he wants to. He's the rightful inheritor of the promises. From Adam through to David and all the promises and all the words of the prophets, which is why Paul writes to the Corinthians, all the promises of God are yes and amen in Messiah, in Jesus. They're his. And if you're in him... Guess what? You get to inherit them too. This new covenant is entirely his. We are simply the beneficiaries. And Hebrews then gives us three particular promises. Not the promises between the Father and the Son, but the promises that that in Jeremiah were made concerning us. Those who would be the beneficiaries of this new covenant, which the Father and Son made for us. So they're concerning us. These three promises, okay? Number one. Promise number one, in the order they come in Scripture. I will put my laws into their minds and I will write them on their hearts. In this new covenant, God's laws are not written on stone, but written in our hearts and our minds. If you go back to the Hebrew version of Jeremiah, the word there is law, is Torah. In the synagogue, There are copies of the law, of the Torah, the five books of Moses. It's a treasured, hand-copied Torah scroll. Only a trained and certified scribe can produce a new copy of the Torah, writing every Hebrew character by hand with an ink quill or pen. And in Judaism, having the law and treasuring the law is a very important thing. But keeping, obeying the law is another thing altogether. You see, the law commands, but it cannot enable. One commentator says, legislators can enact good laws, but they can't induce others to obey them. Parents may utter good precepts, but they can't engrave them on the hearts of their children. And sages may express sound maxims and just precepts on morals, but there's no security that those will be regarded. You see, you can, you can put up the, the do and don't list, but the problem is, You can't make people do and don't. God says, I will write my laws in your minds and in your hearts. And really, that's a parallel. It's saying the same thing twice. Because Hebrew poetry does that. It says it, then it says it. So it's a parallel statement. This better promise of God's new covenant is he'll write his Torah in our hearts and in our minds. F.F. Bruce says, what was needed was a new nature. 
a heart liberated from its bondage to sin, a heart which not only spontaneously knew and loved the will of God, but had the power to do it. This is a regenerated heart. It doesn't just say, I know what's right, but I can't do it. It says, I know what's right, and God's, God enables me to do it. Grace is more than forgiveness. It is more than pardon. It is power to live, to do the will of God. Parallel passage to Jeremiah 31 is in Ezekiel 36. It's another of the great promises of the new covenant. Moreover, I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit within you. I'd make the capital S there. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes. Not just see them written up on a board, but walk in them. And you will be careful to obey all my ordinances. God writes his law in our hearts in this new covenant promise. We're born of God and things change in here. We're changed from the inside out. So that we're being taught inwardly, taught by the Holy Spirit, how to live, how to delight, how to joy, how to rest in God. And this promise is not just that we'll have information about what pleases God, but we'll have motivation and even equipping to do just that. To live in a way that honours our Father. I'll write my laws in their hearts. One of the remarkable things about when someone has been born of God is that how their conscience becomes awake, alert. You don't have to give them a do and don't list. I've had the conversation with people any number of times. David, do you think it's all right for a Christian to do this or that? Or what what do you think about so-and-so? And and I've learned now, I've learned. What do you think? (laughs) I just feel, I just, I can't, I'm uncomfortable. I said, that's all the answer you need. You're being led by the Spirit. Your conscience is telling you about these things. Why? Because, and I don't go into explaining all this, because God has written his law in their hearts. They've been changed. They've been born of God. That's promise number one. That's pretty good, isn't it? Yeah? You don't have to carry a, a big do and don't list around. You know? 300 or more commands. You just trust the Holy Spirit to show you, guide you, and you listen and you obey. Promise number two is this. It's very simple, really. I will be their God. And I will be their God, and they shall be my people, and they shall not teach everyone his fellow citizen and everyone his brother, saying, Know the Lord. For all will know me. That's all believers, that is, you understand? From the least to the greatest of them. In this new covenant, we shall know God as our God. It's another parallel statement. I will be their God, they shall be my people. And when you get to the end of the book of Revelation, you're looking into eternity. That's the one thing that's absolutely clear. He will be our God and we will be his people forever. In, close, in the closest fellowship and community you can imagine. Simply, we are, we are with our God. 
In the Old Covenant, you see, in the Old Testament, you know, people knew, some people knew something of God, they had some experience of God, and we, you know, that's lovely. We read about them. But for most people, uh-uh. You know, God was David's God and Isaiah's God and his God and maybe her God, but for most of them, <sighs> but this God is our God. And when you read Genesis, did Noah and Abraham know God? Well, that is our God. Did David know God? When you read the Psalms, yes, that is our God. Read the prophets, did Isaiah and Jeremiah and Ezekiel and Daniel and others, did they know God? Well, that God is our God. Israel's God is our God. And the Israel of God now is not in fact that those of natural descent from Abraham, Isaac and Jacob, but it's Messiah Jesus and all in him. The New Testament was made for all who will trust in Jesus Messiah, Jew and Gentile. This God will be known by us. They will all know me from the least of them to the greatest. It's a personal relationship of faith and obedience in which we are dealing with the Holy One, the Almighty, the Eternal, the All-Wise, and we are his dear children, as we sang earlier. He's our great, great Father and our God. Now, let me tell you this. No religion brings a man to actually know the Lord like that. No religion does it. Most religions have people still trying, still seeking, hoping. They, one day they might, they might get to know God. The new covenant starts, starts with us being brought to know God. You know him. That is why when you're dealing with someone from another religion, whether it's a Jehovah's Witness or a Muslim or whatever, the one, you, know, you can get into debate and you can discuss and you can argue, bargy and all this. The one thing that is unshakable is when you talk about how you know God yourself through Jesus, how you experience his love, how you know his hand upon you, how you, how you at times he, he helps you, he advises you, he leads you, he protects you. Your knowledge of God is the thing that shatters false religions. It's the thing, absolutely the fundamental difference that you can actually talk about the fact that you know God as your father, as your protector, as your provider. You actually hear him speak to you at times. You know his hand upon your life. We know the Lord. It's a fundamental difference. Everything else is religion. And religion doesn't get you to God because only Jesus gets you to God. But the outcome and fruit of this knowing God is our obedience to his word. And the Old Testament knowledge of God frequently connotes acknowledgement of his holiness and obedience to his will. You see, there's a tendency in our language to get a bit slack. So we can talk about God as being like our, our buddy and Jesus as our best pal. But the fact is, Jesus says, if you love me, you'll do what I say. So there's always an acknowledgement of his greatness and of his holiness and that I am dependent upon him, and I am into him. Yeah? That's what we learned going through the letters of John, and in particular what Jesus said here. John's in his letters expanding what Jesus says, If you love me, you'll keep my commandments. Promise number two, they will all, get the all? Know me. 
There's no priest as a mediator between you and Jesus and Jesus and God. There's no more intermediate. There's one mediator, Jesus. Which means every single one of us has the same relationship, the same access, the same opportunity to ask and receive answers to our prayers. Every one of us is exactly the same under the new covenant. We have one mediator. We have one priest. Jesus. And we have, as we saw earlier in, in, in Hebrews, in chapters 4 and 5, but we'll come back to it in chapter 9, we have absolutely free, open access to the throne of God through Jesus. To bring all our requests, all our needs, to pour out our hearts. There is no limit, there is no barrier to us. Because our door is open. The door is Jesus. They will all know me. Promise number three. I will be merciful to their iniquities and I will remember their sin no more. In this new covenant there is full mercy and forgiveness for our sins. Again, it's another parallel statement, saying the same thing twice. A hundred years before Jeremiah, and of course, here we're looking at a long quotation from Jeremiah 31. A hundred years before Micah had prophesied in Judah. And F.F. Uh, F. Bruce gives this summary of Micah's prophesying. He says, The God of Israel was incomparably a pardoning God, passing over transgression, unwilling to retain his anger, delighting in loving kindness, treading his people's iniquities underfoot, casting all their sins into the depths of the sea. It's a wonderful picture, isn't it, of this wonderful, merciful, pardoning God. But we understand that this came about because of the new covenant. It wasn't to do with the Old Testament sacrifices. God could only be merciful like that on the basis of a, an offering, a majestic, huge, monumental, cosmic offering. How would God put away our sins? Not just this sin and that sin. Oh, I've done it again. Let's take another offering up to the tabernacle and get it sorted out. Oh gosh, here we go again. This mercy, this kind of mercy is based upon the full payment for our forgivenesses. The blood sacrifice of Jesus himself. And I'm going to say this a few times as we go through Hebrews. The offering of Jesus Messiah, his blood, once for all people, for all sin, for all time. See, God is not whimsically merciful. Oh, do I feel like being nice to them? Yeah, let's give them. You know, let, 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 let's, figure, let's think about this. Shall I forgive them or not? God is not whimsical in his mercy. Why? Because while he is just, he can in, be entirely just in forgiving us and justifying us because Jesus has paid for our sins. They are already paid for him for. That is how good this new covenant is. Full pardon. A new heart. So that we have a, not only forgiveness of sin, but a remedy for sin. And knowing the Lord. That's three promises that are made to us. That's the new covenant. 
And guess what? We, every one of us, has the same opportunity to believe these things and to live in them. To live in them. Now, that meant, of course, that the Old Covenant was therefore obsolete. There's no purpose in it anymore. When he said a new covenant, he's made the first obsolete. Whatever is becoming obsolete and growing old is ready to disappear. They, there's an expression, the writing is on the wall. You know that comes from Daniel when a finger wrote on the wall? Well, in the new covenant language, we need to say the curtain was torn from top, torn open. The moment that Jesus died on the cross, the thick veil in the temple that closed off the Holy of Holies from the rest of the temple was torn, not by a human hand, from the top to the bottom. It was meters tall, this thing. The Holy of Holies was shown to be absolutely empty. There was nothing in it, nothing at all in there. The sacrifices of the temple and so on were complete because Jesus had died, fulfilling all of those things. The time of the law was ended. The old covenant was now obsolete, fulfilled entirely in Jesus' Messiah. Now, of course, the veil was soon repaired by the hands of men because the profitable business of the temple needed to continue, and it did so for some years. But the end was coming. And within a few years of this letter to the Hebrews being written, all of the apparatus of the old covenant, Jerusalem, the capital, the temple there, the priesthood, the government of Judah, would disappear. Destroyed by the Roman Empire, just as the Lord Jesus had predicted and as his disciples had therefore expected. The surviving remnant of the Jewish people would be scattered among the nations. The age of the law and the prophets is past. The age of the Son is here and here to stay. It's a fundamental in Christian theology. The old has performed its function and has now given way to the new. And this new covenant remains operative to the end of this age. Now I'm going to say some things that are pretty obvious right now. But we are in this age of the gospel. We are in this age when Jesus is extending his kingdom, when men and women and boys and girls, day by day, week by week, year by year, are being added to his kingdom. And that's happening. It's happening. It's happening in extraordinary ways and extraordinary places. The kingdom of Jesus is advancing. We're living in that time. And it isn't finished yet. It won't be finished yet until the last person is saved and needs to be saved. God is patient, not willing that any should perish. This new covenant remains fully operative. The gospel is the power of God to save everyone who believes, Paul wrote in about 80, 50 something. It's absolutely the same today. It's still the same truth, the same power. This new covenant is switched on, powered up, still running, until Jesus returns as the judge of the world. So the gospel offers Jesus to us, the mediator of a new, greater, better covenant, in which there are three key promises for those who will believe. Number one, God will write your, his laws in your heart. Number two, he'll be your God. Number three, your sins will be forgiven. Now you could say, well, that, wouldn't that be better around another order? You can argue that, but scripture put him in that order, so leave it be. Pardon, 
presence of God, power to live. Jesus and the new covenant, therefore, are available to you. Have you trusted in Jesus? You may have been a church goer for many years, or you may be here for one of the first times that you've gathered with us to attend preaching his word and worshipping Jesus. But I want to ask you to consider these three promises, whether they're true for you. Not true out there. That's good. You believe they're true. Objectively, they're, they're true, but do you know them to be true? Andrew Murray summarizes it this way, moving them around. Pardon for sin. Purity of heart. Presence of God. Is that what you know and enjoy? Good. If not, why don't you ask him today? Ask the Lord to receive you today. Ask him to be your God. Ask him to forgive all your sins. Ask him to write his law in your heart so that you will know and learn how to honour him and obey him as you follow the Holy Spirit. So that you will know the power of this new covenant. This is more than words. This is the power of God that brings change, that brings new life. It's more than information. We call it the gospel. Paul says the gospel is the power of God. It's His word makes things happen. And the word of the gospel causes change, causes freedom, causes new birth, causes forgiveness of sins, causes the knowledge of God. And if you don't know that, if I may even say it this way, if you don't feel that and enjoy that, ask him. Ask him. Jesus and his new covenant are available to your family and your friends. It's so easy for us to write off people around us, oh, well, you know, they don't know the Lord. Uh, This side of either their death or the last day, there's no reason to give up. Do you know that? You have no reason, you have no excuse to write people off. Keep on asking and keep on talking. I could even say chatting. About what? Did I tell you the little secret? We're not in the religion business. We're in the knowing God business. That's the difference between this covenant relationship and everything else that pretends to be religion. So when you're, you know, when you're dealing with your friends, with your neighbours, with your family, I'll pray for you. You know, doesn't mean oh well, I'll, you know, I'll give it a shot. It's like you know, I'm going to, I'm going to, I'm going to. I'm going to rest on this relationship that I have of knowing God that I'm even going to ask him for you. You know? And talk about the Lord and who he is to you and what he means to you. You know, it says in, in Revelation that they overcame by the word of their testimony. You know, by the blood of the Lamb. There's something about, you know, you're actually talking not just about truth, kind of truth, but this is what it, this is, what it is to me. This is this is what I, what this is the this is the love of God that I feel and, and find, and, and this is how God I find God's help for my for myself, and how I see him answer prayers from time to time. Talk about the Lord and His covenant mercy and help and faithfulness, and then let's not forget there's a world out there. 
Jesus and his new covenant are available to every nation, every people group on heaven. I wonder how interested you and I are to see the Great Commission completed. Because that's, that's got to happen before Jesus comes. Every people group's got to hear the gospel. But you know what? In God's sovereignty, you know, the 1600s, 1700s, where people had to get on sailing ships and sail for months to go and find these people to share the gospel. Nowadays, you can walk outside your house and meet people from the other end of the earth. People from other cultures, people from other religions, so let's say. You don't have to go very far at all. Let me just suggest to you, we've got to, we've got to wake up to the fact that we have a mission field right where we live. Right where we are. And these people, you know, the, listen, if I, let me put it this way. All right. Excuse me if, it's, if it's, it sounds the wrong way of saying something. But there's an awful lot of white Brits out there who don't understand the gospel at all, too. It's no longer taught. People no longer have Sunday school. Schools don't teach Christianity. They don't have assemblies. They don't know the Lord's Prayer. There's a whole heap of people right outside our front doors, right there in our workplaces, who have no clue, not a scrap of knowledge about the gospel and about the Lord Jesus, about God the Father, God the Son, God the Spirit. So guess what? That's us. That's why you're there. That's why we're there. If this gospel is such good news, we've got to get on our toes, ready to share it. How blessed are the feet of those who bring good news, right? So look at your feet, say you're blessed, get going. But where your feet take it, your mouth needs to open up as well. And this is not soapbox preaching. This is just you being a Christian talking about your knowledge of the Lord. Right? You understand? You don't have to be a theologian. That's that. You're very happy about that, aren't you? You just have to be a Christian. There's a scripture in the book of Acts that says that they went everywhere. And, and in the... I haven't looked it up for a long time, but I think in the Greek it, it kind of almost puts it this way. And they went everywhere gossiping the gospel. Just, just talking. It wasn't preaching. It wasn't teaching. It was just talking. Just ordinary level talking. They were just talking to people about the gospel, wherever they went. They were scattered by persecution. That's what they did. As they're going through town, they say, oh, by the way, why are you, why are you on the road? Well, because the Christians are seen. Because, well, what's a Christian? Oh, well, you see. They just talked. Gossiping the gospel. There's all kinds of gossip where we don't want to get near, but the gospel's good gossip. All right? You can do that one. And this all happens until the last day. We're going to draw towards communion together today. Let me ask you again. Do you know the Lord? Do you know your sins are forgiven? Do you know that he's written his law in your heart? That you are empowered by the Lord to live for him as you draw on his grace and rely on his spirit. When you read the Bible, it's not your do and don't list. It's your food for life. It's the thing that stirs your faith. It's the thing that says, I do, I, yeah, I do need the Lord today. Please, Lord, help me today. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. I'm going to just 
open up the scripture to, oh no, I'm going to read this to you. About the new covenant. This is a hymn. And I've put it in the notes, so those of you who got the notes can see it on the back page. There's a bit of space on the back page, so I've put this hymn in. This was written by a Calvinistic Methodist in the 1700s called Augustus Top Lady. A debtor to mercy alone, of covenant mercy I sing. Nor fear with God's righteousness on my person and offerings to bring. The terrors of law and of God with me can have nothing to do. My Saviour's obedience and blood hide all my transgressions from view. The work which his goodness began, the arm of his strength will complete. His promise is yea and amen and never was forfeited yet. Things future, nor things that are now, nor all things below or above can make him his purpose forego or sever my soul from his love. My name from the palms of his hands, eternity will not erase. Impressed on his heart it remains in marks of indelible grace. Yes, I to the end shall endure, as sure as the earnest is given. More happy, but not more secure, when all earthly ties have been written. Covenant mercy, covenant love. And in, if six people could volunteer to serve, please, on this morning. We'll get organised sometime soon, doing this, but in the meantime, if you come and help us. Paul writes to the Corinthians, For I received from the Lord that which also I delivered to you. Come on, that's fine. That the Lord Jesus on the same night in which he was betrayed took bread. And when he had given thanks, typical Hebrew prayer of thanksgiving, blessing God for bread, he broke it and said, Take, eat, this is my body which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same manner, he also took the cup after supper, saying, This cup, listen to this, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. The new covenant was made in and through the sacrifice of Jesus. This do as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death till he comes. And the Lord's death, by which what was accomplished? The new covenant was established. So when we take the bread and the wine, we are thanking the Lord that he has made this covenant, this superseding, overwhelming, greater, better, huge, comprehensive relationship between God and man, which is forged by the cross and governed by Jesus. And in that we have all of these blessings, all of these promises, all of this for our good. But it centers in on this, his body, his blood. The terms of this agreement, this wonderful, holy, awesome agreement, took Jesus to the cross. The new covenant in my blood. So, Lord Jesus, we thank you that in you we have redemption. There is nothing more that we must do, nothing that we can add.
No behaviour on our part kind of adds to our scorecard. You, Lord Jesus, have made full and final redemption from our sin and righteousness that gives us standing before the Father. We thank you that in you we are blessed with every spiritual blessing from the heavenly realms. Because Jesus, you are the heir to all of the covenants and all of the promises. We sing sometimes, praise God from whom all blessings flow, but actually they flow through Jesus to us. Every good thing comes from you. Therefore, Lord, we pour out our hearts to you in our needs, in our troubles and our wants, because you are our mediator, you are our source, you are our supply. We thank you for your work already begun in us. We dare to believe you will continue it through and not give up on it until you bring us safely home. Thank you for such covenant mercy. Thank you that these things are in some way which we can't even understand so written they cannot be broken. Thank you, Father, in Jesus' name. Amen.